Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Edie's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. This is episode number 10, which means this podcast is no longer in its infancy, and to mark that occasion, we're heading back to university. Now, I say we, but as I'm sure the keen-eared amongst you have figured out, I'm not Luke Nichols. Instead, ED senior reporter Matt Mace, which is me, will be bringing you this episode. Um, but don't worry, change is a good thing. Well, obviously not climate change, but transformational change is, and at ED, that is what we are all about. So, what else has changed since the last episode? Well, Luke and George are unable to be here today um, due to work commitments. They're sourcing some high-class material for next week's podcast, which you'll hear about later. So with that in mind, I've been tasked with putting this episode together by myself. And other than a few technical fires, I think it's gone pretty well, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Firstly, I'll be bringing you a chat I had with the chair of the Institute of Corporate Responsibility and Sustainability, Claudine Blamey, to discuss whether CSR is becoming another elitist job in the market. Being able to influence people, being able to sell the agenda to a whole organisation and engage with all different types of employees isn't about getting a degree. Following that, I head back to university for Freshers' Week. Now, I'm beyond the days of drinking wine from a bag and Strawpedia and WKDs, but I'm presenting this podcast from London Metropolitan University in their recording studios, where later on I'll be joined by the uni's sustainability manager, Rachel Ward, to discuss the impressive and ongoing low-carbon legacy that's being developed here. So, in true university fashion, let's get this rather lonely party started. As Claudine Bamey tells me what CSR professionals need to do to build on their educations and start inspiring change within the business. So I've just left the RSA in London where the ICRS have just hosted an event on whether or not um, CRS is becoming a kind of an elite profession and we've gone literally about 200 yards down the road uh, to have a chat with the chair of the ICRS, uh, Claudine Blamey, who's agreed to join me today. So Claudine, welcome and again thank you for agreeing to have this chat. Thank you. And so I thought I'd uh, start off um, and give our, our listeners a bit of a kind of insight into the RCRS. It's a, it's a relatively new uh, establishment, 2014, summer 2014, I think it was introduced. So what was the kind of the the reasoning behind pushing it out to as a, as a membership thing and, and what's happened since? So the idea was, um, it came out of a group called the Corporate Responsibility Group, um, who were there supporting organisations in their sustainability and corporate responsibility agenda. And more and more, CRG was supporting the individuals as opposed to the whole organisation. And we recognised that there was a gap, and the whole membership of CRG recognised there was a gap, that there wasn't a professional institute for corporate responsibility and sustainability individuals. And so ICRS was born, um, and since then, I think we've gone strength to strength, Um, The membership is growing, individual membership as well as corporate membership. We have mentoring programmes, we're looking into doing research and really becoming the voice for corporate responsibility and sustainability professionals. And um, as as the voice of this sector, what is the? I mean, what I suppose what are you saying right now? Like, uh, what's what's kind of happening on the horizon that you're getting very excited about? The agenda is ever growing. Um, it's becoming a lot more strategic. It's becoming about the purpose of organisations and the individuals that need to really be able to deliver that kind of strategy for organisations um, are finding it a, a huge challenge. So we're here to support those um, senior individuals, but also people who have 
corporate responsibility and sustainability as a part of their role, which is again a growing part of, of this agenda, that someone in HR might need to become an ICRS member as well as the person who has this um, as a part of their full-time role. So are we able to support across the board on that front as well, which I think um, again is going to strengthen that organisation. And um, you mentioned strengthening organisations. The event we're at today was obviously about asking questions about whether there is a need to open up um, CRS to um, a new pool of, of millennials, I suppose, people coming out of not necessarily unis, but getting into it via apprenticeships. The, you know, just for like a show of hands, it, it seems that many people are there are kind of graduates who have who have degrees in this kind of background. It was a really interesting um, topic I thought about new ways to perhaps open up a new talent pool that perhaps don't necessarily have the technical skills but have perhaps some of the more personal leadership skills which when you look at this um when you look at this industry and you see people like paul polman who who are leaders it's a it's a fundamental part of what needs to be done um you're obviously there at the event you um you uh, you opened it up for us so what was the kind of key message that you took away from it i think the key message for me was that we're not doing enough to be able to um, diversify in our profession um, and I think going back to the roots of education and making sure that we're playing our own role in putting corporate responsibility and sustainability as, a, as an accessible language within education younger children coming up and learning about it as they come up um, through the, the years will strengthen that um, I'm really passionate about bringing diversity into this profession. I think the core competences and the skills that we have as part of ICRS membership really talk to that as well. Being able to influence people, being able to sell the agenda to a whole organisation and engage with all different types of employees um, isn't about getting a degree. Um, You can have those skills whether you have got a degree or not, and you come through as an apprentice as opposed to going through university, um, you can offer that in that in that sense as opposed to being too elite, if you like. And um, the the debate it kind of touched on ways to kind of bridge the gap between education to to the business aspect. There was a kind of call for businesses to to go out and, and reach out. I suppose um, once once you kind of get these. Um, get these young people into the business so there, there is a need to train them up you're um you've written a blog for us before and you're, you're a huge believer in kind of mentoring and the mentoring process um and i think one of the things i took away from the blog was the how you can you're not just learning from something you're learning from a like-minded person who, who shares the same passions and um CR, uh, csr being as broad as it is how how important is it to have someone that you can align yourself to and and learn from i think mentoring is hugely important i think no matter which level you're at, you will need mentoring. I, I have mentors and I have mentees, and I will never stop that. So I think as a mentor, you learn as much as the mentee's learning, and then you're also learning from your mentors. I think it's important to have um, diversify met diversification around your mentors, so you don't just stick to someone um, who has a particular... Uh, skill and you think right that's it that's my mentor now I think you need to think about um, changing your mentors on a regular basis so that you are covering the basis as well but mentoring is really important and we will major on it and we are majoring on it at the ICRS and um, I mean I suppose you um, you mentioned it's important as well to, to mentor from other people keep that 
keep it fresh, keep it on toes, and you're always learning something new then. Um, and in terms of, of a way of learning, I suppose success stories go a long way. And again, another another piece you wrote for us was about the, the need to kind of share these stories, especially when you're you're trying to maybe not teach young youngsters, but almost inspire them. Um, you, I believe, run the impression that um, perhaps people in this profession aren't as, as good as, or perhaps aren't as vocal as they should be about past success stories. In your opinion, um, why aren't they and why should they be more vocal? I think the agenda for a quite long time was based on managing risk as opposed to here's some wonderful things that we're doing as an organisation and we want to shout about it. So if you come from it from a risk perspective, you want to sort of hide it. And even if you do something great, you don't want to be shouting about it. You want somebody else to shout about it for you. So I think in that sense, we're a bit shy. And that legacy is still a little bit there. But organisations like Unilever, who are talking about their purpose and, and really starting to shout about the things that they're doing, are great examples. And I think more of us need to be doing that. And um, is there also a case for perhaps uh, realigning who you're, I mean, shouting at, I suppose, uh, Unilever um, because they're backed by such an enabling board, they can they can preach that message to their consumers. Um, but perhaps uh, the individual CSR professional who, who has these ideas, who perhaps doesn't quite have the leadership skills that were being discussed earlier, is there a need to share these success stories internally to the board, to other members' departments, to kind of really bring the CSR part of the company across the whole border to, to areas like HR and procurement and, area, and stuff like that? Yeah, it's definitely um, important to engage internally. I think um, doing a report <laughs> is probably a good way of grabbing everybody's attention, both internally and then the report to be external, facing um, and shouting about in what you're doing. Um, I'm not a great fan of doing separate sustainability corporate responsibility reports. I think it's important to integrate everything into one. So in my day job uh, at the Crown Estate, we um, produce integrated reports. So we don't have a separate sustainability report. And that really engages people internally as well, because it's part of everything we do. It's not a separate part. Okay, and engaging everyone internally as well is, is a, um, I suppose, going back to this creating creating new leaderships via via talent pools. That's the way to do it as well. I, I know there's a, a fair few companies who have um, hired someone to be the head. It was it was mentioned on the questions, be this head of the assembly department because they're in-house. Regardless of the fact that you are then missing out on these externalities that come in and aid the company, um, in your opinion, company ethos that can be picked up by staff, if you catch my drift there, they, they've, they've been around the agenda, they know it, they almost live and breathe it. Is that almost as valuable as having the technical skills to be able to drive the CSR agenda? I think it just depends what organisation you're in. Um, I think some organisations like to promote from um, internally um, and that works well for them. I think there is room to be challenged from an external perspective. Um, whether you've promoted internally or you've, someone's coming from the outside, I think there's still room, particularly at board level, for external challenge. So I think non-executive roles play a really important part in the governance structure in this aspect. And having someone there, like a Jonathan Porritt or someone like that, who can really challenge the board in the decisions that they make to take it into account more encompassing all of the capitals that a business depends on as opposed to just looking at the financial which is what normally happens 
It's interesting you mentioned uh, Jonathan Poir actually. He, um, we, I think, uh, one of uh, one of our staff members interviewed him recently about this whole kind of CSR embracing for this social movement. So it's uh, it's, it's good to see his his words still speak and they resonate with people. I suppose um, quite a quite a broad question, but but the members at um, ICRS, uh, what what are they what are they talking about at the moment? Are there any kind of major challenges or anything they're really kind of geared up and excited about? Apart from Brexit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's talking about Brexit. Um, I think there's huge challenges. So I think the development sustainability goals um, are one of the biggest challenges that we need to all get to grips with and to be able to respond to as organisations in particular. And we need to know what those responses are. Um, I think that's going to be our biggest challenge in the next 10 years or so. I think particularly in the UK there are challenges that do relate to Brexit and what that means for us. I think um, coming out of being so London-centric in the UK is going to be one of the the results. I was talking to an economist yesterday and he was talking about the growth of the North um, and the Northern powerhouse Mm. and creating jobs, creating more head offices in, in that part of the UK is going to be the next thing in the next five years. So what does that mean for our profession? Um, and how do we respond to that positively and, and really actually accelerate that and make that happen a bit more? Uh, and so ICRS, we're setting up different hubs uh, across the UK. Got one in Scotland, got one in the Midlands. So we're starting to respond to that already. And um, I mean, you mentioned this kind of um, the Northern Powerhouse growing. Um, I'm not sure if you saw the Aldersgate report that came out um, last week about how how the green economy and green businesses will, will drive that. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Brexit. That's going to be the government's big kind of, you know, that's what they're trying to sort out. They're trying to negotiate all the deals. There's so much going on. And as a side, you've as a business point of view, you've got all these major kind of global goals, the SDGs to go forward, you've got the Paris Agreement that will come into force, that's going to have ramifications. Um, is it a case now for businesses to really kind of band together through memberships like ICRS, collaborate and almost drive these agendas and push towards these goals without um, a policy guideline which may not be able to be put in place in time because there's broader issues on, on the horizon? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we should be waiting around for government to do anything. I mean, apart from anything else, they seem to be focusing on schools and grammar schools and the whole debate is around that and everyone seems to have forgotten that we're supposed to be negotiating uh, with with the EU. I think um, on the broader agenda and partnerships and creating partnerships that don't really exist at the moment, really important. I think innovation, as I said earlier in the debate today, will come from that diversity of partnership. And we're already seeing quite a lot of that happen with large organisations working with SMEs and startups to try and create that innovation and creativity that's really going to crack some of these massive, massive challenges that we've got. Again, thank you for agreeing to, to come chat with me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So that was Claudine, who gave us some interesting thoughts as to how companies can build and even look beyond graduates to create successful CSR professionals. So sticking with the graduates theme and seeing as how I've managed to commandeer a radio booth at London Metropolitan University, um, I'm now joined by the sustainability manager here, um, Rachel. So Rachel, uh, again, thank you very much for agreeing to have this chat and for letting me rent out the, uh, I suppose, well-decorated radio booth. 
No problem. Nice to see you. Yeah. So um, obviously, university is kind of back in full swing. Freshers' week, I suppose, is, has arrived. So just to give our, our readers an idea, um, what kind of goes on during the downtime when the students are away? Does, does the university shut down? Or is this when you kind of, um, this is where all your kind of initiatives and plans and ideas really come to the forefront? During vacation, that's actually our busiest time at the university in the States Department. That's when we develop all of our projects. So over summer, we'll have done things like implemented photovoltaics, we'll have improved drinking water, we'll have done a number of energy saving opportunities. So we're sort of planning them throughout the year. So it's essentially having two different jobs. During the summer, that's when you implement all the projects. The rest of the year, you're planning and doing a lot more of the awareness activities with the students. Okay, and um, I suppose that the planning you put in place... Um, it's building on quite an, an impressive um, legacy, I suppose. Um, unlike when I was actually uni- at university, I've actually done my research this time, and I can I've seen that um, you know for 2014 you had a 33% emissions reduction target, which you surpassed by 10%. As of 2015, you're 3% away from a 50% reduction target for 2020. Um, there's a host of things you introduced, so remote shutdown process for for when computers don't need to be used. Um, you've got building management systems, which I suppose for a university where there is a an influx of people in buildings at certain times is quite important. Even, I was told earlier, an, an electric van to kind of transport people around. All this kind of um, stuff has been kind of incorporated and you've got goals, but um, why? what made you kind of push on and, and not just look at energy reduction, but go for this kind of EV van? What, what gave you this holistic approach? Was it kind of goal setting that, that drove you towards that? I'd be interested to see how these conversations happen and, and what kind of made you think this is something we can introduce to to improve sustainability in general further? We've actually surpassed our 2020 targets now. So we've reduced our carbon emissions by over 50% this oh, wow. year. So that's fantastic mm-hmm. news. I mean, I think the thing that drives us forward and the reason we do all these different projects is just the enthusiasm across the university. Everyone has different interests. So there might be ideas that come from different courses, might be people within estates that have a particular idea. So just working together as a team, that's what develops all the, the different projects that we want to do. And... um. In terms of, um, you know, kind of the outside looking in at sustainability, it's always a good thing to to kind of label. I mean, there's questions from a consumer point of view whether you should do it, but from an institution, an organisation or even a business, someone um, that's kind of looking towards sustainability is clearly a business going in the right direction. Now, I have, um, this is going off tandem slightly, I have a neighbour who's got solar panels on their on their roof and obviously um, the university has, has solar panels um, dotted around campus and um, I think a lot of a lot of the people here kind of in my village kind of view him as like a you know sustainable because he's got these on that they don't really see the other stuff he's doing the kind of recycling and stuff like that the um, the ones where you manage to get like 10% reductions for your like building management systems and stuff is is concepts that you can't really you can't really sell or as, as a kind of not PR but as a success story. So I'm interested to see what kind of conversations went on with the on-site um, generation capacity. Um, why you introduced it, and also if there's been any reputational benefits from it. Have students or um, institutions, organisations you've conversed with been impressed by it as a result? Sure. So, yeah, quite a lot of the work that we have undertaken in the past has been more the back of house stuff, looking at the building management system, looking at variable speed drives. I guess the shift change that happened when it kind of raised um, the awareness at the university was when we undertook a big lighting project in our major library. 
So that was two floors of lighting that we changed to LED lights. So that uh, reduced energy consumption by 54%. But to do that, we really involved the library staff. So we got them to choose the fittings and they really assisted us in the implementation process. And because it's such a front of house thing and students use that all the time, they could then see that there was a benefit to energy efficiency. It wasn't just boring back of house boiler stuff. You know, it made the area a lot nicer to do. So that that was a real shift change in kind of awareness and perception at the university. And then we've gone on to do things that were, were more kind of visual, like the photovoltaic panels. Um, although you can't actually see them because they're on the roof, we do tours at to the top of our tower building and you can look down on them and we've done quite a lot of publicity around that as well trying to translate into things that people know about so we we tell people how many cups of tea we make in a day by the amount of solar power we use we've also introduced solar panels in our tower courtyard now because we have these um it was a olympic rings that were made by one of our students and they were due just to be disposed of so we moved them up here and we've put solar panels on them so that staff and students can charge their mobile phones and laptops on them so it's just like having visual things like that around so it's people are always thinking about sustainability they might not know it at the time but we kind of drip feed it into it see the, the reuse of the Olympic rings as well rather than them just going to waste which is uh, always good and I suppose you, you touched on it a bit there the kind of engagement from staff and students um, recently I spoke to Andrew Bryars at Aston University who are another kind of university that's leading this charge um, and he he's there I think he's their energy manager he was kind of tasked with engaging staff and students um, he used green weeks which I know are also used here um, like staff leagues but like departmental leagues for energy management reductions in terms of how you promote sustainability engagement to staff and students, how, how does it differ, um, you know, how, how to get them both on board? Well, I think engagement is one of the hardest bits of my job because obviously we have uh, two intakes of students every year. So we have a lot of new people that we need to try and engage with, uh, a lot of staff as well. So there's various things that we do. We also have a green week and we have activities throughout the year. With the green week, we try and make the activities as engaging as possible. So they're quite fun. So we have a massive tower building with 13 stories. It's got about 226 steps. So we have a tower challenge of terror so that people have to run up to the top and they see that it's quicker to run than it is to take the lift we do things like we have a battle of the bins so it's a competition who can sort the waste quickest and then also we try and involve students and staff in all the projects that we do so there's always sort of a, an element of student involvement particularly with the courses so we've undertaken a double glazing project at one of our buildings that's got our architecture students in so they're involved in developing the design of the windows which we then took the ideas on board and implemented it and then the master's students in low energy architecture, they undertook the monitoring for us. So they did it before and after. So we just try and get students involved in things as much as possible, particularly relating to their courses. I think that that's quite important. I suppose on the on the topic of students, um, early on in the show, um, we heard from Claudine Blamey, the chair of the ICRS, who that panel was all that she was chairing was all about them discussing CSR becoming an elite job um, and how it's potentially worth looking beyond um, beyond graduates to source them. There was an argument that, you know, courses can develop technical skills, perhaps not the softer personal skills, such as leadership and engagement and, you know, just um, presenting. I'm aware that this university offers um, masters in CSR, is that correct? Uh, we've undertaken various courses around CSR over the years, but um, for the first time next year, we've developed our own uh, 
masters in corporate social responsibility and sustainability. And I think that will be good because it will be quite a practical course as well. So my department, the States Department, will be quite heavily involved in it and we'll lead on a module because we're undergoing a big programme of transformation of our buildings. So it's a good opportunity for it to be a living lab so students can be involved in the projects and really learn the practical skills. So I think that that will be really good. And um, I mean, that ties in perfectly with with some of the suggestions that were coming up from from this debate that were um, very much how... You know, there's a need for, I mean, apprenticeships are commonly used, but there was a need to kind of go beyond just graduates and technical skills. So has this, um, has this new course come about for that kind of thinking to prepare students the best they can be? Or is it simply because of this transformational change that you mentioned that now would be the ideal time to enhance their skills further? Well, I think it's it's come about through various things because we've had a lot of change at the university and we've been quite successful in terms of sustainability. So it seems a shame that we're doing so well and then we're not kind of teaching other people to do what we've done as well. So I think the, the course will be kind of different to other courses as well because it'll look at some of the areas that you don't tend to get taught about, things about psychology and staff and student awareness. I know that's something that's really interesting. And, you know, I did a master's in clean technology and it wasn't something that we covered then. So I think that that kind of makes it a bit different. And uh, this new course you'll be um, you'll be introducing, is it very much getting businesses involved to kind of bridge that gap? Are there plans in place to do so? Yes, definitely. So we'll be getting involved with as many businesses as we can. So inviting uh, external speakers in to give the students the practical experience and also we have run a graduate intern scheme at the university which is excellent so it gives around 40 um, recent graduates opportunity to expand their work experience so at the moment in my department working with me I've got uh, two interns so they learn different work experience skills because I know that's something that I struggled with when I came out of university was trying to get my initial job just because of the lack of experience so to be able to do that to other people is brilliant. Talking about kind of graduates, I suppose millennials is, is to you know, throw them all under one name. Um, there's been a lot of reports and stuff come out from our kind of sector, and we've covered it on, on site about how there's business benefits um, to engage with millennials, how they're much more kind of open um, to not just buying a product, but aligning with a company's ethos. And I suppose to a certain extent, if a university can provide the course they want, they're much more... Um, likely to identify with a university purpose rather than just the courses. In your opinion, um, you know, kind of working in an institute that is about millennials and is about um, the new generation, I mean, you're literally generating the, the next generation of people who will hopefully come to our site. So um, with that in mind, um, are you are you kind of viewing this firsthand, this, this openness to these kind of new trends like low carbon, sustainability, you know, doing the right thing, health and safety, that kind of aspect? Or is there still kind of this idea that, Oh, you know, teenagers, etc., have these short attention spans and potentially won't be able to take all of it on board. We've seen a real change even over the last sort of two years in terms of people's expectations and the awareness through the engagement activities that we're running. So like our Green Week, the uptake of people attending that has really gone up and our student union are really involved and they're doing things like green impact. So they're continually improving their performance as well and we have different activities that students have really got on board with like we've got two beehives and that's really captures people's imagination and people are always continually asking questions about what more we could be doing so there's definitely interest 
And um, I just want to go back to the you, I mean, you mentioned you've, you've hit your 2020 goals early, which is which is incredible. And it's it's even more impressive when you look at the wider scope of universities. Um, a report's just come out, in fact, this week about um, the universities as a whole and their carbon reporting. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's a there's a like across the board. There's a 43 percent target for 2020 uh, reductions. They reckon on current trajectories, 15 percent. Um, looking through as well, uh, London Met is constantly ranked in the top five across all the main kind of indicators. Um, a top on a few, second on a couple as well. So, as as a as a leader, as a university leader, um, what kind of message or what kind of skills do you think that could be passed down? Could you collaborate with universities? How can universities who you know traditionally have ties and divestment issues with fossil fuels? How can they push this low carbon agenda? Well, I think one of our strengths has been the teamwork. So it's Although it's just me and my job within the department, I work with so many people across the university who have helped make us exceed this target. So it's working closely with the maintenance staff, IT, the academics, and bringing everybody together as one team. So it's at the forefront of everybody's mind. So when the maintenance team are replacing something, they're now thinking about the energy reduction that could be done there. So it's part of everyone's job, really. Okay, and in terms of energy reduction, is there any kind of initiatives you're looking... I mean, now you've got the goal in place, so I suppose the question is, what what next? Um, is there any initiatives you're looking at? Um, I imagine for a university, something like demand response, where you can, you know, tailor tailor stuff um, and tailor output and send stuff back to the grid would be an ideal opportunity? We've, we've got quite a lot of plans in place because we've got this one campus, one community project. So we're, we're currently three campuses and we're moving to one campus. So this gives us a great opportunity to look at different technologies because we'll be redeveloping a, a large site. So one of the things we're quite keen at looking at and we've started Investigation Works is combined heat and power. So we've got two opportunities. One, we could have our own system because we've got three buildings on one site. We're also working with the local council so that we could build a... A district heating scheme so that we could then power some of the hard to heat homes and alleviate some of the fuel poverty in the area. So the One Campus One Community project, there's, there's so many things we could do there. It's not just energy wise, but looking at things like green roofs and rainwater harvesting, stuff that you wouldn't be able to do with you retrofitting. You have to do it from scratch, really. Okay, so it's um it's all systems go, and and in light of that, I realise I've I've probably kept you from a, a rather busy schedule. So um just to wrap things up, um again, thank you very much for your time and for letting me commandeer the the radio studio. No problem at all. And speaking of time, we're almost out. So before I bid you goodbye, just a few reminders that this podcast is available on iTunes. After all, it's only fitting that the latest member of the RE100 has our podcast listed on it. I'll also endeavour to be back next week, hopefully with Luke and George this time, you know, just to add a splash of variety, where we'll be listening to George's chat with RAP's newish Chief Executive Marcus Gover, as well as the iFixit company on all things circular economy. There's also a plethora of opinions from speakers at ED's Responsible Retail Conference, as I talk to experts from Forum for the Future, Mud Jeans, Hammerson and others. But for now, it's goodbye from Luke. Oh right, that's it, he's not here. Well, in that case, it's just goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.